Halloween. Hopefully this will be the week of Halloween when this comes out. So yeah. Yay. Yay. Happy Halloween. So welcome everyone to my weird little Halloween podcast. Yay. And tonight we're going to delve into tales from the very spooky city of New Orleans. Or as people from New Orleans say, not Nolens. <laughs> I'm so say burn with rage. So sorry. <laughs> oh man. Um, so I believe oh, we have uh, our wonderful host for tonight, uh Black Santa, <laughs> Teresa, myself, Tia, and Patrick on the ones and twos in the back. He's <laughs> <laughs> supposed to stay on mute. Like I that was the deal that he couldn't speak. Oh, oh, is that the deal? Yeah, PG my contract. Ah, <laughs> how dare you, rebel! Like, <laughs> so, so wait, who's going first again? Well, I'm. That would be me, I believe. Can start off with right? some evilness. Are you ready bom, for the bom, evil? Bom. Yes. Evil. Yeah, ready for the evil. Because I can't, I can't even handle it. This stuff to me uh, is, you know, the most terrifying of all because it involves human beings. So nothing really, really, um, it's pretty cut and dried. <laughs> all right. <clears throat> so, uh I, of course, found out because there is a whole lot of information on Madame LaLaurie. And yes, she, uh, if that name means anything to you, uh, probably would mean the most if you're an American Horror Story fan, because her character was depicted in season three, Coven one of the better seasons. And she was portrayed by uh, Kathy Bates, who is of course amazing in every role she does. So uh, anyhow, uh, let's get into, let me get into um, just a few, just I'll give you first a little brief synopsis of uh, who she was, and then we can get more into the details about exactly the kinds of uh, horrific things that happened uh, under her rule, let's say. So uh, Madame LaLaurie, she was born as Marie Delphine McCarty or McCarthy. Uh, She lived from March 19th, 1787 to December 7th, 1849. And she was born in New Orleans when it was under the Spanish colonial rule in Louisiana. She was a New Orleans socialite and she was best known for her torturing and killing of slaves in her own home. So that is uh, Delphine LaLaurie in a nutshell. Uh, She was married three times And her third husband was uh, her last husband that uh, she ended up with. Um, 
April 10th, 1834 would be the day of her undoing and the discovery of her cruel slave treatment practices. And I'll get into that specifically a little bit later. Uh, Her family came to New Orleans from Ireland around 1730. And the reason there's a difference in the spelling of her last maiden name is because uh, essentially it was just shortened. Uh, Her name was McCarthy, um, good Irish name. And then it was shortened to McCarty or Day McCarty. Um, so that's what, what she was known by prior to becoming Madame LaLaurie. Delphine's parents were prominent in the European Creole society. And uh, her uncle and her cousin, they both held positions of power. Her uncle was the governor of the Spanish-American provinces for a time. And her cousin was actually the mayor of New Orleans for about a period of five years. So her family was very affluent, very prominent, and they were pretty well respected um, within the community. Uh, So Delphine did not, I mean, she was wealthy, essentially. She didn't really have to worry about much. And, um, you know, uh, you know what they say about rich people. (laughs) Sometimes if you have too much money, you might start getting into some weird things and it went beyond weird for her and ventured over the line into cruel and inhumane. So too bad for her, but yeah. uh, we'll, we'll get into that a little later. Um, these, these things you have to set up beforehand to kind of understand the, the cultural and the political climate at the time. Uh, there was, in 1791, the Haitian Revolution that occurred, and that was huge, huge um, movement in trying to, you know, get better treatment of slaves. It was basically an uprising that they formed themselves, um, but it was very bloody. It wound up be- being, you know, more massacre um, definitely. And at the time, uh, well, I said there was heavy, heavy slave resistance. It led to a lot of that violence. And one of Delphine's own uncles was murdered by his own slaves. Uh, it was a little bit earlier, actually. That was in 1771. But nonetheless, the Haitian Revolution obviously had to be echo kind of a lot of that similar uh that that kind of stuff happening um so the sorry my echo stop (laughs) i was like i heard something in the background but i wasn't sure what that was what 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 was her trigger word she was talking about fatty acids or something i have no idea what she thought oh my god that I said. Your echo is haunted. Excellent. <laughs> oh okay. my goodness. Ooh, maybe. maybe. <laughs> That's fantastic. Okay. Uh, yes. So the Haitian Revolution, it also led to many slaveholders uh, moving 
harder on their slaves, disciplining them even more harshly out of fear that they might rise up against them. So that I think is really important to put into context in the background uh, before I get into Marie's actual story. So just keep that in the back of your mind. Um, but so I did say that, uh, oh, I'm sorry, I called her Marie. Uh, <laughs> well, no, that is her first name. Sorry, Marie, but she went by Delphine. Um, so Delphine was married for three times. And the third time was the charm or the doom as I'd like to think of it. <laughs> um, Delphine, her first husband that she married, uh, his name was Don Ramon de Lopez y Angulo. And she married him when she was only 13 years old. Oh, my God. Yeah, that was in 1800. Ooh. So, <laughs> yeah. That, <laughs> that marriage would not last that long, though. Um, he actually, Don Ramon uh, de Lopez y Angulo, he died suddenly. Days just days before her first child was born, and oh. yeah, so she gave birth to her child. They were actually traveling at the time um, because he was from Spain originally, and he's a high-ranking um, officer. Um, and they were doing some traveling at the time, uh, and he, like I said, he died suddenly. I believe it was in Havana, and then. Um, then Delphine and her child had to uh, go back to New Orleans. And of course, she was widowed at this point. Um, so four years later, Delphine would marry again. And she married this time a man named Jean Blanc. And Jean was a prominent banker, merchant, lawyer, and a legislator. He and Delphine have four children together. And he actually died as well. <laughs> he died um, eight years later in 1816. So uh, it's not looking too good for Delphine at this point. Uh, and when she was married to Jean Blanc, at that point, she was known in society as Madame Blanc. So I thought that was interesting, too. I mean... Why wouldn't she be? But just, you know, yeah. didn't think of it. <laughs> um, nine years later, after Jean Blanc dies, Delphine decides to marry husband number three. And like I said, it would be her third and last husband. And his name was Leonard Louis Nicholas Lalaurie. He was a doctor, a physician, and he was actually much younger than her. At that point, she was about uh, 38, something like that, maybe 40, and he would have been 25. So um, quite a significant age difference. Um, and she was the wealthier one. Uh, he may have been a doctor, but she had definitely, she had all of the money. Um, which brings me to the infamous La Lori Mansion. In 1831, Delphine buys the property at 1140 Royal Street in her own name, and she has a uh, two-story mansion built there 
with attached slave quarters. That's going to be very important. That is the most sensational part of the story that people focus on, rightfully so, but we will get into that. Uh, Delphine was, yes, I already said, she was very well known and respected in the society at the time. Uh, There were accounts of her actually being very kind, or at least appearing kind and polite in public with her slaves. Um, But that was going to be a huge smokescreen because uh, all the other accounts we would hear that came out later did not describe her in any way, shape, or form as a kind woman at all. So uh, you could see, though, how in that society she would of course, if she doesn't, like any good uh, <laughs> any good person who's doing um, killing and torturing, she would not want to present that face to the public. Yeah. So um, there was um, speculation that abuses occurred between Delphine and Dr. LaLaurie in their marriage. Delphine had actually petitioned a court for separation from him in 1832. And that that was actually two years prior to the ho- the house catching on fire, um, so that's interesting. There may have been um, physical abuse. Uh, she made a claim uh, in her claim. She said that she had, or sorry, she claimed that her husband had quote treated her in such a manner as to render their living together unsupportable. And some of her children also would confirm her claims. Uh, so there was a separation that did occur between them, but it may have not been a permanent separation because Dr. LaLaurie was present at the home on the day of the fire. Um, so he may have just been visiting her or I'm not sure what the situation is, but either way, they were separate, separated for a while, and then they were not. <laughs> uh, now we'll shift into her horrors exposed. So I did say that the date of the fire was April 10th, 1834. And that is the day that this raging fire breaks out at the Lowry Mansion. And it's said that the fire was started by a 70-year-old female slave who was tasked as the family cook. And it gets worse because the family cook uh, was also apparently chained by her ankle to the stove. Um. And this was a common practice for that household. she, yeah, <laughs> she was chained to the stove. Oh so if you God. can imagine that, that alone is horrifying. So um, this was likely also um, a suicide attempt uh, because she was found by the police and the fire marshals um, and more or less it indicated that she would rather die in the blazing fire rather than suffer any more infractions and possibly be sent to the dreaded top floor room. And that was an attic room where slaves never returned from once they 
entered. And that was well known to the cook at the time. So um, that was her attempt at a way out. But um, the cook actually, to my knowledge, did not die. So, um, but at that point, things changed completely um, in the household. So things wouldn't be the same after that point. When rescuers arrived to the scene, they would soon come to find that the upper attic room where the tortured slaves were held was, like I said, just this attic room. And there's many different various accounts of the treatment and condition of the slaves. But one thing is kind of remains the same throughout. That's just the fact, the simple fact that Delphine Lalaurie treated her slaves horribly and severe atrocities and crimes were committed. So no matter what people may hear or associate with what acts were actually perpetrated, doesn't really matter. Like Tia said, uh, I think before we started recording, uh, just the fact that she owned slaves and, you know, treated them so terribly, uh, that enough, that says enough alone. I don't think you need to uh, split hairs about what torture is worse. So <laughs> we can't imagine that. Um, the historian and writer Harriet Martineau would provide probably the most insight on the horrible details of Delphine's treatment of her slaves. Uh, the, that author would recount tales told to them by the New Orleans residents during uh, a visit in 1836. One account said that there was a young slave girl. She was possibly 12 years old, perhaps uh, given the name Leah, and she was seen by a neighbor falling to her death from the roof of the Lallory Mansion. Now, it was said that she did it to avoid being whipped by Delphine, and she was going to be uh, punished by her. So instead of receiving the punishment, the girl decided she would rather jump off the roof. So that's very sad. Um, her body was buried in, uh, sorry, her body was buried on the grounds. So that was going to be important later on after the fire. Um, later writers would further elaborate on the case, saying that Leah had been brushing Delphine's hair and that she hit a snag in her hair and that caused Delphine to get really angry, infuriated to grab a whip and chase her with the whip. So the incident with Leah would lead to a full investigation of the La Lories. And they were actually found guilty of illegal cruelty and forced to sell back nine slaves. But that really did nothing uh, because Delphine, after that happened, uh, Delphine persuaded her relatives to buy back the slaves and hand them over to her. And it's it was known at the time that this was happening, apparently, by authorities, but the practice at the time was to just look the other way. So I don't really understand it myself. I mean, first, slavery in and of itself, wrong. But 
second, beyond that, the authorities would in, do an investigation, see that there were abuses or some kind of injustice going on, force them to sell a chunk of their slaves, but then look the other way when the slaves were bought back. So not, of course, that situation makes <laughs> no logical sense, uh, but that was the case. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, there was a newspaper called the New Orleans Bee, and the the New Orleans Bee reported on April 11th, 1834, that it was the bystanders and rescuers wanting to help and make sure everyone had evacuated from the mansion um, after the fire occurred, that they would, that, that caused them to break down the doors to the slave quarters. And when they unlocked, or when they they um, broke down those doors, they found, quote, seven slaves, more or less horribly mutilated, suspended by the neck, with their limbs apparently stretched and torn from one extremity to the other. The slaves, when asked, said that they had been imprisoned in there for months. Uh, other accounts described such horrifying devices as spiked iron collars placed around the necks of some of the slaves to keep their heads in a static position. They had emaciated, severely emaciated bodies that showed signs of abuse from flaying the skin and binding their bodies in restrictive poses or positions. When these terrifying discoveries were made more widely known, the mobs would swarm the LaLaurie mansion and all but destroy everything and anything that they could. It was quite a ruthless mob, and it was said that really only the walls were the only things left standing. So they did a pretty good number. They were pretty horrified by the discovery of all of this. Yeah. Um, at least a couple bodies, including that of the young girl Leah's, were uncovered by digging in the yard. So we're not really sure, but um, they they found at least a couple of bodies, and they know that one was of the child. Uh, this part to me was probably, is probably... Um, I mean, it was the most chilling discovery. I had no idea that this happened. So after the slaves were, um, were discovered and they were, uh, taken out of, of that attic, uh, they were actually taken to a local jail and they were essentially, I hate this part. They were essentially displayed to the public. Like they were made available so that people could come and look at them uh, like animals in a zoo. And um, the New Orleans Bee reported that by April 12th, up to, and who knows if this is true, but they reported that uh, up to 4,000 people had gone to view these, these slaves. And they wanted to view them because, quote, they had to convince themselves of their sufferings. So 
<laughs> it's just, you know, really, oh, I was such a chilling piece of, of the story. Um, after the fire, Delphine uh, did wind up escaping, unfortunately. Um, they tried, it was said that part of the mob tried to stop her, but um, she got away pretty quickly um, because there was a lot of violence going on. Excuse me, but she escaped and she flees to New Orleans. Oh, no, I'm sorry. She escapes and flees New Orleans and she makes it to the waterfront where she boards a schooner and travels first to Mobile, Alabama, spends a little time there with her husband, and then she goes on to Paris, France, where she supposedly lives out the rest of her life. And I say supposedly because um, after the fire, there's just not a whole lot of information that is solid and verifiable um, about her whereabouts. It's kind of a mystery. Um, there's not a lot documented. So it's kind of a lot of speculation as to where she actually went. Um, most people tend to believe she did go to Paris, France, and stay there for the rest of her life. But it's also rumored that she possibly moved back to New Orleans after a while under a, a new name and then, you know, possibly resumed her activity. Um, I don't know. But like I said, the, those details are unknown. Um, and the the account that we have from the from her going to, from New Orleans to Paris comes from uh, Harriet Martineau's account that uh, was written in 1838. Many facts about her life, uh, I said after the fire, were unknown. And in 1924, a cracked copper plate was found, and that was found in the alley four of the St. Louis Cemetery, number one. Uh, so that's found, and the inscription is in French, and the English translation basically reads, Madame Lalaurie, born Marie Delphine McCarthy, died in Paris, December 7th, 1842, at the age of six, and then it doesn't have the second number. Um, it said, according to the French archives, though, of Paris, that Delphine LaLaurie actually died on December 7, 1849. And that would have been at the age of 62. Um, so there's, as you can, you know, hear, there's some obvious discrepancies on her, her actual whereabouts. Um, there's some letters from her children that uh, historians try to get information from, but it's really not enough to say one way or another definitively where she was. So it's not actually technically really known where her body is, even though the, that, that, um, that copper plate was found in the cemetery, it's still not, not that definite. Um, so the, after the, um, the destruction by the mob in 1834, the mansion would remain ruined in that ruined state for another four years. In 1838, 
That's when it was rebuilt and is the same structure essentially today um, that it was then. Uh, It had some interesting uses over the years other than a private residence. Uh, One of them was as a public high school. Another, (laughs) yeah, a very interesting, right? Yeah. Um, I'm pretty sure sure my high school was used to store weapons during like World War II uh, because we had these weird underground bunker areas. Just couldn't explain it, but yeah. Anyways. (laughs) Yeah, well, that's, um, I hope nothing kind of supernatural happened there for you because some of the girls at the school would get, um, would, would wind up with uh, mysterious cuts or bruises. And when teachers asked who did that to you, they'd say that woman. Oh, so yeah. Uh, I'll get into the haunting part in a bit, but um, yeah, that's definitely super creepy. So (laughs) that's when it was a school, but it's also been um, used as a bar, uh, a furniture store, which I thought was interesting. And um, now it's essentially, again, luxury apartment building, um, private residence. Um, A lot of people do know, probably most of you guys know about um, the Nicolas Cage purchase. (laughs) Yes. 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 I heard about that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We were talking about it just casually last night after our last podcast. But um, yeah, it was around 2007. He buys and then loses the mansion a couple of years later through bankruptcy. So. Uh, wah, wah, wah. <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm pretty sure his pyramid is still there in the cemetery. His plot. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. He bought a a pyramid plot ahead of time, right? Yeah. I'm pretty sure his pyramid's still there. Let me look up. I'll show you guys a picture. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. So, so he owned it for, you know, very short period of time. Um, I think I read something like he didn't even wind up going in it really ever. Um, So that was a great purchase. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, then now today it's currently a private residence that's owned by a Texas oil tycoon and he's lived there since 2012 or 2013, but, uh, he may not still be living there. Um, uh, from all the accounts that I've read, it's pretty hard for anyone to stay living in that house for any period of time. Uh, So that brings me right into the juiciest part, the most sensational part, the role of Madame LaLaurie, as she's known in folklore, essentially. So, and I do say folklore because um, the more outrageous claims about what she did to her slaves, there's nothing to support that those stories were true or ever happened. Uh, Can't find any evidence on it whatsoever. But um, the big sources that that I drew from uh, researching um, 
the New Orleans Bee was, like I said, the the big newspaper of the time there in, in New Orleans. But then I found out that through another source that they were likely also had as much credibility maybe as the National Enquirer today. So <laughs> yeah, that kind of takes takes a lot of the facts out of it, if you will. But yeah, uh, <laughs> that is the that is the account that we had. And that that was that was what people, you know, relied upon then. So um, the other uh, account was from Harriet, the one that I already spoke of, Harriet Martineau, um, who came to observe um, and get accounts from other people. And they had a book called Retrospect of Western Travel. Um, But the sensational stuff essentially comes from two women. And both of these women were authors. The first one, uh, her name was Jean Delevingne. And one of her first books she wrote was Ghost Stories of Old New Orleans, published in 1946. And this book was really the origin of the more gruesome, unthinkable accounts that disgustingly detailed all the most awful atrocities. So this is where we get uh, depictions or stories of the slaves that were uh, imprisoned in that attic room with, get ready for all this. It's really gross. Oh God! Their, uh, their eyes gouged out. Okay, these are just some examples of things that happened. Apparently, uh, their eyes gouged out, fingernails pulled off by the roots. Ugh. This is to me. Well, they're all horrible, but this one really. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this one really gets to me. This next one, lips sewn together. With feces in their mouth. Yes, they they reference that in American Horror Story. Yes, exactly. Yep. It's just oh my god. Woo. Uh, intestines pulled out and knotted around waists, like intestine belts, essentially. I guess. Don't get on that fashion trend. No, <laughs> don't need to accessorize that badly. No. <laughs> um. And then holes bored into skulls where wooden sticks were inserted and could essentially stir a person's brains. Oh, God. Yeah. So these were just a sampling of the atrocities that allegedly occurred in the attic, according to Jean de Levine. Then um, to take it one level up, I don't really oh, know how you could oh level boy. up from that, but <laughs> a woman it named, yes, it did happen. A woman named Kalila Katharina Smith. Uh, she is the author of Journey into Darkness, Ghosts and Vampires of New Orleans. That was actually published a lot more recently in 1998. Oh, uh, boy. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Gotta check now, that out. Yes. And Kalila is also a um, a New Orleans ghost tour owner. So I'm pretty sure I read this book. Did you? Okay. Yeah. yeah that book. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's it's very like I said, 1998, so pretty contemporary. Mm-hmm. Um, but like I said, yeah, um, Kalila definitely one upped and added more explicit. I don't know how it can get more explicit, but it does. Um, horrifying details about some of the Ooh. atrocities, and these included ugh, the human caterpillar. Oh God, that's so, real. Yeah. Essentially, they talk about, you know, finding a slave with their skin ripped off in a circular pattern, um, you know, and I don't know, making them, I guess, look like a caterpillar. So, yeah, that's just terrifying and (laughs) nightmare inducing. But then um, also, uh, maybe even worse in a way, because it just sounds ungodly horrible um the human crab so taking someone's bones and essentially breaking them and repositioning them so that they're at angles that make them look crab-like i suppose oh god Um, okay so that allegedly was another thing that that she said happened so, uh, like you said, Roxana, yeah, that a lot of these were depicted um, visually, which was so fun to watch. I think I did close my eyes in American Horror Story. They, they spared us the human caterpillar and the crab. Yeah. But there was the sewing of feces in the mouth. Yes. I think sewing eyelids shut. Ugh. Skinning. Uh, putting the the bull head. Oh yeah, the bull head. Um, yeah, yeah. Not, yeah, definitely. Yeah, that 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 one I could. <laughs> well, once I knew that it was on, then I could handle it. You know, because obviously he he comes comes back throughout different episodes. But um, yeah, the stuff while they were actually inside there, looking around inside that attic space, I was like. I think I did shut my eyes. I just can't. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. yeah, that they they took um obviously, you know, the creators and producers of the show took a lot of creative liberties. Uh, but they definitely they obviously drew <laughs> not a documentary. It wasn't are you are, are you saying it's not true? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, no. <laughs> I mean, she definitely um she definitely treated her slaves horribly. Um the, oh, early, God, yes. the earlier accounts with, you know, I mean, just just the fact that they were shackled at all, but the fact that they had these, you know, spike collars and the emaciation, they, you know, that that was one thing that it was said that her daughters had a kinder heart than her because they would try to sometimes feed the slaves and they would get severely punished if they were found doing that, they would get beaten. Um, So yeah, I mean, obviously there was a whole lot of abuse going on. Um, But most of the modern retellings of uh, Madame LaLaurie, her legend, they definitely use uh, the De Levine and the Smith versions of the tale as the basis for all the explicit torture claims. And uh, they say that um, it's said by some that at least a hundred slaves died under LaLaurie. 
So that is, of course, more evidence that's not supported there. But, you know, it's certainly possible. But uh, another another theory was uh, that um, her husband, since he was a doctor, um, that he liked to engage in uh, voodoo practices and that um, he also... Uh, wanted to medically experiment on some of the slaves, um, but that really hasn't been confirmed either. So it is just kind of a lot of speculation, but bottom line, she treated her slaves horribly. And, um, you know, hopefully uh, somewhere down the line, she her karma came back to her because just horrible, horrible things that happen. So that leads us to, um, I think, kind of the last piece of of her whole uh, tale is that the mansion, like I said, is still standing today in the French Quarter. I know um, Tia said you've been there. Um, I've been to New Orleans a few times, but... <laughs> I always went for a party time. I never did anything historical. So I essentially did not get to visit any of the more historical things. So I would love to go back and see it. But um, it, it is said, of course, to be very haunted, extremely haunted um, and cursed also. Uh, like I said, no one is said to really live there for longer than about five years. And with the kind of stuff going on with the haunting, uh, people say that they can hear moaning, uh, the phantom footsteps, and they can definitely feel negative energy just as soon as they approach the mansion, even that the outside of it, that you can, that it's that strong that you can feel it. So, um, yeah, that, that would definitely, I would definitely be interested to, um, to go see what that's like. Um, but, uh, they do have ghost tours, of course, uh, that prominently feature that's, you know, definitely going to be one of their spots on the tour to go to. Uh, but, uh, because it is that private residence, they're not able to go inside. So, uh, they just take them to the outside, but, um, it's still quite, you know, if you do quick Google search and look up the mansion, still quite stunning um, and looking, you know, almost exactly like it did uh, in 1838, at least from the outside. So, um, but don't try to live there because you might not meet a good end. There was um, an earlier story of someone moving into you know, more, more contemporary times now, but they moved in there. It was a man who moved in there and he actually wound up being brutally murdered inside. Uh, yeah. So was it, was that part of the curse too? I don't know. Uh, all I know is that from everything I read, the place has some pretty bad negative energy coursing through it. So I'm not sure that, um, yeah. I'll have to see a follow up and see uh, who might be living there uh, nowadays, <laughs> if anyone. Um, so yeah, that that's um, that's essentially uh, 
all I have for you on Madame LaLaurie, but boy, wasn't she terrible. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. She sounds like a character. (laughs) (laughs) To put it nicely, I guess, right? Fun at parties. Oh, wow. No. (laughs) If you want to torture your party goers. But yeah, yeah, she was just she was just said to be very sadistic. In fact, under her on her Wikipedia page, it it lists her as a serial killer. Um, I guess technically. Yeah. He killed more than three slaves in mm-hmm. kind of a systematic yeah. way. Then, yeah. 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 That sounds like a series. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> you know. Which, where she goes. I'm not, yeah. Yeah. Because- yeah. Well, everybody saw, yeah. everybody saw um, Coven, right? So you all saw Kathy, yeah. Kathy Bates. Oh, yeah. Kathy uh, Bates. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was just, <laughs> that was actually, she was like, the comic relief in that part, really, a lot of, in a yeah. lot of the scenes, because she just was so bewildered by not being in the 1800s anymore that <laughs> didn't understand what was going on around her. I just that now now having uh, because knowing that I was going to have to learn more about her evil ways, uh, I just kept saying to myself. Well, Kathy Bates had those funny moments as her in AHS. So I'll think about yeah. that if the the torture and the terrorization gets to me too much. So. But I got through it. I got through it. So, um, yeah, that's that's what I have on on that most evil lady. Mm. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Well, thank you. Uh, should we take a short yeah. break or do you want to just get sure. into the next story? Up to you guys. Uh, let's take a short break so you can get some water and okay. use the restroom. And then, yeah, okay. let's get I started. Charger. I'm also looking up stuff in New Orleans, too. We stayed at this awesome hotel called the Inn on St. Anne uh, when Thank we were you. there. And it was a property that was owned by Marie Laveau for a time. ATF. Yes. I'm sorry to interrupt. Can you say, like, hey, we're taking a break or something? Oh, all right. Hey, we're going to take a break now and get back into some more spooky New Orleans stories. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> that was a post. Yes. Pat and I went in September. If we go right after... Southern Decadence, although I would like to go for Southern Decadence. It's their, like, Pride Festival. Right. If we go after Southern Decadence, which is what Pat and I accidentally did, uh, like, all of a sudden this week, midweek, was, like, really cheap. And it's because we landed in New Orleans, like, hours after Southern Decadence ended. So, like, it was, like, the Monday after their Pride Festival for the weekend. So everyone was leaving. And, like, the whole city was basically abandoned. There was, like, very few tourists there. I don't know. It was kind of nice. Yeah. What time of year? uh, Early September. Oh, September. Okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Like I said, I would love to go back. I just partied and showed my boobs. So (laughs) I would like to. I want to do tours and I want to eat all the food. (laughs) 
That's what I'm there for. Yeah. <laughs> I was much younger in my de- own defense. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this was a while ago, by the way. <laughs> but, yeah, getting some history would, would be awesome. And they're, like, I don't know if anybody likes gumbo, but, oh, my God, they there's, there's one movie. place. What? I love that movie. With the elephant that flies? I didn't invite you into that. <laughs> sorry, I'm just smoking. Be saying anything. You're fine. Okay, sorry. Cool. Anyway, so shall I get started? Yes, yes. Okay, cool. So, uh, I'm doing someone that was also, I'm doing someone. Uh, I'm also talking about someone that was <laughs> featured in the American Horror Story Coven, and that is Madame Marie Laveau. And when you hear about her, you think of the voodoo queen of New Orleans. And the difference between her and who Teresa was talking about is that there's actually not that much documented about Madame Marie Laveau, even though they lived around the same time. She was, I mean, what we do know is that she was uh, one quarter black uh, and still kind of considered part of um, the not lower class, but because she wasn't completely white, she was obviously considered uh, not affluent. And therefore, there's no real reason to document her stuff because she was not important to the white folks at the oh, time. Oh, wow. Right? Exactly. So we do have what they believe was her birth certificate. Uh, she was born September 10th of 1801. So after, uh, uh-huh. what's her face? The Del- yeah, Lollery. Yeah, Delphine Lollery. Uh, so she was born. Uh, she was born a free black person. Uh, her mother earned her freedom around the age of 18 because, again, during the Spanish a rule of New Orleans, it was slightly more progressive and people that had been enslaved did have the opportunity to earn money or work their way out of being a slave. And her mother did that at the age of 18. Her grandmother actually earned her freedom when she was about in her mid-40s and her grandmother purchased the land where the house where Marie Laveau lived, uh, it no longer stands, but that area is still around in New Orleans. And the address, and again, this is only the land. There is a house there, but it's not the actual house that she probably would have lived in. Uh, that was accidentally torn down. But if you go to 1020 St. Anne Street in New Orleans, uh, you can go to where Marie Laveau's house used to be. And people do kind of give offerings to her. That's uh, where we usually- stayed. We stayed okay. at a hotel called the Inn on St. Anne. And it was very, it was either oh. part of that building or it was yeah. a portion well, of that. Well, that was on the property. land yeah. uh, that her grandmother had purchased after she had earned, uh, had purchased her, her freedom. And people go there today and they'll put little like beads or a lot of times they're going to put hair ties because uh, part of the legend of Madame Lurie Laveau was that she was a hairdresser. Um, but again, a lot of these things are more folk, uh, folk 
tale or folklore because uh, there wasn't too much that was documented about her. So we do have what they think is her birth certificate. And then she does have a marriage certificate. Uh, she was married at 18. So she wasn't married off at a young age. Woo, thank goodness. I mean, 18 <laughs> is young, but compared to that day and age, like yeah. people we know get married at 18, but yeah. I don't think we know anybody that got married at 13. No. Am I wrong? I don't Can't say I do. No. Or had a kid at 14. I mean, it happens, but yeah, you know, it's, not, it's not common. No. Uh, so she married another free black man, and he had actually... Uh, had been a part of the Haitian uprising that Teresa oh, okay. mentioned. Yeah. And so yeah. he came from Haiti to New Orleans and they married. His name was, um, oh God, I'm going to butcher this name, Jacques Paris. So I know the last name. So Jacques Paris, he a man of color from Haiti. Uh, they had two daughters. And again, this was documented. Uh, Felicity, who was born in 1817, and Angela, who was born in 1820. Now, the thing is, her husband and her two daughters kind of disappear from the records during the, the 1820s. And some of the legend goes into that she was she mysteriously got rid of her husband. When in reality, what happened is they probably all ended up dying. But there was uh, problems with the records from St. Louis Cathedral that they were destroyed from the years 1825 to 1829. And these are the funeral records. So if they had died and been buried we won't know about it because all those records had been destroyed. So we can only assume that that's probably what happened to them because nothing was ever heard of from them after that. There are still stories that people do believe that the two daughters did survive and they have descendants that are still in New Orleans. But again, there are no records to support this. Also, her husband, she doesn't think that they, she mysteriously disappeared because after the 1820s, she refers to herself as the widow, uh, Marie Laveau. So she knew her husband was dead. Everybody in the probably community also knew he was dead. It wasn't a secret. So he, again, probably died and the funeral records were just, or they were never recorded because again, they were black people and nobody cared. <laughs> That's the reality. Yeah. Um, uh, also, kind of with her reputation that we know of today, especially in American Horror Story, that actually has to do more with white supremacy and trying to make Black people seem uncultured or hedonistic, uh, as opposed to who she might have actually been in that society and the importance of the voodoo religion. So I'm going to talk a little bit about voodoo because it's kind of ties into uh, Madame Marie Laveau because she's known as the voodoo queen. Uh, and there's a lot of misconceptions about it as well. So yeah. voodoo is an actual religion that was brought over to Haiti and to the Caribbean and to the United States by people that had been captured and enslaved from West Africa. And it's a religion that's very much steeped into ancestral worship. 
and worshiping nature gods. So again, kind of the same religion you see in a lot of various cultures from around the world. Nothing pretty crazy about that. Also, uh, the pronunciation uh, was probably more like Vodou, uh, which in West various languages in West Africa actually means pure light. So it's not at all about devil worshiping or worshiping all these horrible demonic gods and doing all these animalistic sacrificial uh, rituals that we really see in our Western media. It was more to do with the voodoo religion. Again, it's a lot of rituals about contacting your ancestors uh, or contacting these spiritual uh, deities like a river spirit or uh, uh, the ocean spirit, kind of in just giving thanks or asking for things. And again, you'd see it uh, a lot in a, many different cultures around the world. Um, there's different types of voodoo, obviously, because of how it evolved within the culture. So, you know, there's the the West African voodoo, there's the Haiti voodoo. Uh, what's kind of known in New Orleans is kind of referred to as plantation voodoo. And this probably, if Madame Lurie Laveau practiced voodoo, this would probably be the voodoo that she did. Um, this also ties into the plantation voodoo and the spread of that culture, especially in New Orleans, why it was so prevalent, uh, was because on Sundays, the slaves were able to have a free day or mm. a day where they didn't have to worry about work. And so after church or mass, because it was uh, the Spanish rule and it was Catholicism, uh, they would all go to the Cong Congo Square, and then that's where they would do these dances and meet with their community and exchange things. And of course, that there were just um, social gatherings that, of course, were later uh, turned into oh, these wild animalistic orgies. But it's like that never happened. Um, uh, another reason why they believe that these people were able to so openly celebrate their West African roots was because there was more uh, enslaved people than there were uh, slave owners. It was, uh, they outnumbered them three to one. So nobody was going to come over to the square and be like, Hey, what are you guys doing? Knock it off because, you know, you would, pretty much get outnumbered. <laughs> so they were able to do that. And so it became, it grew very much in, in New Orleans. And that's actually a very important area for voodoo practitioners um, because it kind of helped solidify that, that culture. Um, now, some people confuse hoodoo with voodoo. So voodoo is the, the uh, spiritual religion. They do a lot of, you know, praying and, uh, various rituals. Hoodoo is where you get more of the working with the herbs and kind of what's called as root work. And so some say that Madame Laveau Lurie uh, was practicing more root work, which would be considered hoodoo. But of course, you know, the white supremacists are just going to mix anything together and be like, it's all devil worship because they just want to make uh, the freed slaves look bad and uncultured. Um, 
Uh, now, the reason why it's controversial of whether Marie Laveau was an actual voodoo queen <coughs> is because she is buried in, uh, hold on, I have it written down, I don't want to, the St. Louis Cemetery number mm-hmm. one. Mm-hmm. And in order to be buried in that cemetery, you have to be a Catholic. And Madame Marie Laveau was known to be a very devout Catholic going to mass on a very regular basis. Uh, if she is buried in that cemetery, she probably wasn't like the high priestess in a voodoo culture because the mm-hmm. high priestess or voodoo queen would actually be buried more out in nature. Uh, so somewhere out in the bayou by a very special tree with markings where their family would be able to come and you know, visit them. So not necessarily in the the Catholic cemetery. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's why they think that she was probably more of a hoodoo practitioner, or if she did do voodoo, she wasn't necessarily like a voodoo queen. Mm-hmm. Um, and now what's really cool around that time was, well, this wasn't cool, but you know, there was a lot of viruses and bacterial infections going around, you know, because it was very damp and all of, you know, this is a port where everybody's traveling, coming together, spreading all their diseases and germs. Uh, The common treatments that they were being given for things like typhoid fever or things like uh, bloodletting or giving people diuretics or what, what is it to make people shit themselves? Yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, They would give them, yeah, things to make them have diarrhea. So they were pretty much, uh, they were extremely dehydrating these individuals when that was the last thing that needed to happen. So when these regular, I quote unquote, regular uh, treatments weren't working, they would actually, the, the society would turn to these quote unquote, voodoo priestesses or hoodoo priests and priestesses because their medicinal uh, concoctions worked a lot better than the bloodletting or the severely dehydrating your patients because they were working with all of these different herbs. So at that time, uh, you know, people from the church were actually going uh, to these individuals that knew the root working and kind of working together. So again, that's why it's possible that she could have been doing root work and being hoodoo while still being a devout Catholic. It's like, um, Mm -hmm. it can. Uh, There's two schools of knowledge though people that believe that she didn't do voodoo at all and then others that was like oh that she was doing it but she was only going to church as a as a ruse as to throw people off of course we don't really know um because it's not really all that well documented uh there were two newspaper articles that kind of referenced voodoo in her way like especially once um right before you know the civil war where they're really starting to crack down on uh, the the culture of the the free black people and those that had still been enslaved and kind of really tearing it down, they were starting to really accuse uh, various peoples of doing things that they probably weren't doing. So probably accusing her of practicing voodoo. Uh, there was just a story where a statue had been 
taken from her and that the statue apparently looked like half centaur, half mummy. We don't really know because the newspaper could have just sensationalized it because, you know, they want Mm -hmm. to get readers. Uh, So we don't really know what the statue was, but that the church made her pay to get it back. Um, And that there was this big hoopla and a lot of the women in the society kind of helped raise money to get this statue back, blah, blah, blah. And again, we only have the newspaper's point of view of what actually happened uh, and also complaints of uh, women coming to where she lived and there'd be chanting and all this ruckus and loud noises. And again, they could just be practicing rituals and doing that kind of thing, but nothing serious or nefarious actually happening. Um, She does end up um, having not really a husband because he was a French nobleman and both his parents were white. So he was probably completely white. Um, They couldn't marry because she was one quarter black. He was white. That was so illegal at the time, but they could still live with each other. So it was more of a a domestic partnership for like 30 years. And they had seven documented kids. Uh, Some people say it was 15. There's seven on record. Only two of them actually ended up living. Uh, The Marie Eucharist Eloise Levu, and then Marie Philomena Glepion. Um, and uh, the her baby daddy, I guess, was the uh, French nobleman Christophe Dominique Dumini de Glepion. So I'm probably butchering that. Um, uh, so she, and then I guess there's also rumors or part of the legend was that she was considered passing because her skin was light enough. Uh, but again, that quarter black would still hold her back from, a, of course, being a part of high society. Uh, another legend I mentioned earlier was that she was a hairdresser uh, and that she was an actual um, hairdresser to the uh, very rich and wealthy um, New Orleans society. But interesting enough, in American Horror Story, uh, they mentioned how uh, Delphine and Madame Lurie Laveau uh, have this encounter and that Marie Laveau kills uh, Delphine's uh, family. That never happened. In reality, they probably never met. They were on two opposite sides. She was... Madame Marie Laveau was a free black woman. There is no reason for her to ever have any interaction with uh, a Delphine. Yeah. Yeah. She um, wouldn't, yeah. She wouldn't have at all. No. Not knowing what no. I know of, of uh, Delphine Lullery L- now. She, but yeah. yeah, that would have absolutely, like you said, never have happened in any yeah. way, shape or form. Made for a great show. But <laughs> yeah, it did because you know you have Angela, have, Bassett, Angela awesome. Bassett did a fantastic oh, job. Yeah, she was amazing. But again, the the character that she was portraying was very much affected by the white supremacist um, yeah. campaign to vilify anything that had to do with African culture, basically, mm-hmm. and yeah. the African people. Um, so. She, but I guess the the legend is it that she was doing the hair of some very high class 
white rich women and that she was getting information from them. And that that's how she almost seemed to be clairvoyant because she knew when things were happening. And that's just because she was gathering the local gossip. But the senses at the time uh, mark her down as not having an occupation. So this whole hairdresser thing was actually, again, something that was probably made up. Um, Like it was, uh, some say it was, this guy was writing a story about a voodoo queen and included her being a hairdresser and then said, oh no, it's totally based off of Madame Lurie Laveau. But again, there is no actual evidence to support that. So that's why they say if you do go to her house and you do want to give offerings, because people will give offerings and then ask for a favor, that probably the better offering would be tobacco and alcohol. That a scrunchie or a hair tie probably is not, she's probably sick and tired of all of that, you know? Just give give, give a little girl what she wants. That's a nice cigarette and some, and a can of beer. Uh, (laughs) Uh, exactly. Um, so their other part of legend is actually kind of very positive and maybe why uh, the white supremacists really wanted to vilify her was that she was kind of known to really help out her community. Uh, she was known to pay for the schooling of orphans so that they could have a future. Uh, if a free black woman had been arrested for some BS reason, she would post their bail and allow them to, you know, walk free. Uh, Native Americans, uh, she would also help a lot of Native American women. And of course, during that time, there was a lot of overlap between Native American culture uh, and their religion kind of coming into the plantation uh, voodoo. And to the point where even today, uh, practitioners of plantation voodoo still uh, will worship some of the various Native American deities um, because and because it would also help each other out. A lot of uh, the Native Americans would help the any people that had still been enslaved to escape. So there was kind of that give and take. So, and also Madame Louvary, uh, Madame. Marie Laveau, okay, there we go. Uh, it was also said that she had Native American blood in her as well. So she was kind of a mixture between the European, um, Native American, and West African. Um, and that she, yeah, that she was just very generous within the community, did a lot of things like a midwife or uh, would help heal uh a lot of the voodoo religion where rituals have a lot more to do with protection and healing than they actually have to do with curses and vengeance. Um, again, part of the legend was that she owned a snake named Zombie. Again, there is nothing in fact to support this. Mm. There are actually no documented photos of her, any images. Really? You, you have to understand she was yeah, you're just right. a, a black woman in New Orleans. She was, even though she's still very much revered in that community, and if she had done what she did, that's still pretty amazing. She still wasn't important in the eyes of the white man. So... And again, so during, um, before the Civil War, and then especially after the Civil War, that's when there was a lot of propaganda to paint 
people that practice voodoo as heathens, as devil worshipers, um, you know, killing babies or doing this or, um, you know, sacrificing babies to their gods. So an example in American Horror Story, uh, we hear about Papa Legba. Oh, yeah. And in in the story, uh, Madame Lurie Laveau gains eternal life in exchange of uh, feeding Papa or sacrificing to Papa Legba uh, a baby every year. Well, that does not happen. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So you can see how it got distorted. So Papa Legba is known more as a gatekeeper in voodoo religion, kind of how St. Peter is the gatekeeper in uh, Christianity religion at at the gates. And so you pray to him uh, for at the beginning of your rituals uh, so that he can open the gates to the spiritual world so that you can contact your ancestors or any of the deities that you need to pray to. Uh, He is portrayed as an old crippled Haitian man who is very much fond of children and he likes to give them sweets and that kind of thing. So you can kind of see how that got morphed into a, Oh, he eats babies and Oh, because they're praying to him because they're always the, you know, the rituals are starting off and they have like special sigils or I forgot what they call them, but there's a, their own name, like a going to butcher this, uh, a, a Eve, an Eve or a Neve, but that's basically like a sigil that we would call it. Um, that's very personal to the practitioners and their family, because again, voodoo has a lot to do with ancestral worship. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they would do this specific uh, sigil. And then that's part of like a beacon to let Papa Legba know like, Hey, come here. Uh, we need to request something of you. And of course, and you know, protestant white or even catholicism that's like oh you're praying to that devil god and oh he likes children that's probably because he eats them and that kind of thing so you can see how these things begin to get distorted oh yeah Um, definitely right and that that then, then they would also say that in these rituals where they're chanting and singing that, Oh, it's all orgies and it's all animalistic and they're, they're getting possessed by demons. And it's like, not really. There's the ritual possession Mm -hmm. that can actually be seen in various religions around the world. Um, even in Pentecostal, um, the speaking churches. of tongues, right? Yes. So that's basically all it is, is that the spirit comes in you and Mm -hmm. it, it, it inhabits your vessel and, you know, you speak in tongues or you, you know, you have a spiritual experience and then it leaves your body. It's not the exorcist. You don't become Reagan and you start spewing yeah. out vomit yeah. or yeah, the devil. That would, who's that would be more fun, body. maybe. <laughs> maybe. Um, but that's, so the, again, these white people would see this. And then, and of course, if it's anything that has to do with, um, black people they're gonna like oh it's demons what they're doing is bad and it's evil and oh look how heathenistic right. and yeah i was just gonna say heathen savage that's you know right the familiar terminology unfortunately for the day of the time period yeah. that we were that exactly. we're talking about but um 
many of those themes, unfortunately, can't believe it, but still carry on today. So, yeah. yeah. And so that's, I think, and then that kind of propaganda really uh, gave voodoo and hoodoo and all of that kind of a bad reputation that it's black magic that it's devil worship uh that it's all about curses and revenge spells and kind of really altering the perception of what is actually a a a authentic religion yes that's not really much different than many of the other religions that are practiced from around the world, especially we know uh, the Chinese do ancestral worship, uh, Native Americans ancestral worship. It's 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 known throughout the planet, and that's really what it's more about. And um, just a shame uh, there. I got a lot of my more accurate information and this is great because i want to take their tours oh my god i almost had it down um but you can see it on youtube it's free tours by foot um and they have them in new orleans and it's a pay what you can tour and their tour guides are very very educated in what they're talking about and mm-hmm. so um, you do have somebody that is a voodoo priest that is talking about uh, how he, you know, growing up within the religion and is able to communicate the difference between what you're seeing on media and what it actually really is. And uh, then you also have people that are very knowledgeable about the history of New Orleans as well and kind of knowing uh, the reality of what is documented and what is speculation. Um, So that's where I'm getting a lot of that information about um, the difference between what is legend and what is what we know for sure. And the reality is we don't know a lot about her. Um, And again, that has a lot to do with because of her status as Mm -hmm. a a black woman um, during that time. Now, again, we do believe uh, that she is buried where it says she is buried, uh, and she is buried with her companion or, you know, basically her husband because they were domestic partners. Um, and you used to be able to visit her her grave site on your own. You didn't have to do it on a tour. But then along the way, somehow it got started that if you wanted to ask a favor of her, you had to do this weird ritual uh, that involved drawing X's on the her, the structure, uh, the spitting, and then also throwing coins. And so for the longest time, her the tomb was just covered in all these little X's and everything. And of course, in the voodoo religion, you don't do that. You don't desecrate somebody's resting place. So you don't write on it. There's You don't do that. They do have their own uh, rituals of how they would visit an ancestor's burial place. But again, you would only do it if it's somebody that you had known when they were alive or they're a direct relation to you. You, don't, you wouldn't go to a perfect stranger's uh, burial site and do this. Um, 
then uh, a few years ago, some guy decided that he was going to completely paint her. Uh, I don't. I keep getting the structure wrong. Is it a? Because it's above ground, so it's a tomb, a right? Mausoleum or mausoleum. So paint oh, the mausoleum uh, pink, kind of like a bright uh, Madonna in pink color. And but the problem is, it was acrylic paint, and it wasn't letting the brick breathe, and so it was destroying the structure. And so uh, St. Louis Cathedral actually had to pay for the reparations of the. Um, of the structure and then ever since that they're like okay nobody's allowed to go there without a tour guide when i think that's that's nice because yeah. people really need to stop doing that um she is not a deity in the voodoo religion she is not somebody that and people that practice the voodoo religion pray to um she is very important to uh people in new orleans and again that's because really of the legend of her compassion and how she was helping her community and what she was giving uh to the community and everything um surrounding that uh, and so that's why she's very important um but again the the sad thing is really the the altercation of the perception of who she really was. If, and again, if we actually had ever known, but she definitely was not this vengeful woman that was sacrificing babies to this dark God, <laughs> you know, the outcast she is portrayed in American horror story. Yeah. Um, Even though so. she was very badass, as Angela Bassett usually is, but yeah. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. I mean, the character that she played was absolutely amazing, but it bears no resemblance to the yeah. actual human being uh, that this is based off of. <laughs> but I saw very badass that both her grandmother and her mother earned their their freedom. And her great-grandmother was the one that had been captured and enslaved uh, from West Africa. So still very amazing, um, giving birth to that very least seven, eight, nine kids. Woof. That's a a feat in and of itself. So good on her. Uh, I would love to go and kind of visit even those areas. Uh, Her house is one of the places that you can visit. And then on the tour, you can also visit her resting place as well, but definitely would not desecrate it <laughs> no oh, and then she did um how, how she died uh this is actually kind of you know uh sad uh she died june 15th 1881 and the cause of death is marked down as diarrhea uh but was probably because of she was probably got cholera and then was just very sick uh there was a heat wave also happening at that time so she wasn't they were saying if she wasn't able to stay hydrated, that probably would have contributed to her her death. Oh, so, wow. Yeah. But that sucks. That that's forever marked as diarrhea. Not least be like, <laughs> yeah. Oh, like dysentery. I hope that's in the Oregon Trail. You have died of dysentery. Yeah. That sounds yeah. a little bit better. <laughs> right. Um, 
And that her daughters did survive. Uh, the daughter, Marie Eucharist Eloise uh, Laveau, was probably, it was known as Madame Laveau number two, and that she kind of, again, the legend is she carried on kind of the works of her mother and everything. Mm. Um, yeah. So, uh, again, a lot of misconceptions about who she was. She wasn't at all evil. She actually seemed like she was a really great contributor to her society if the what at least part of partial of what the legend is true um yeah she's and then, yeah voodoo uh i think voodoo is very much represented completely different in our western society than how it is actually practiced right so yeah that's really that's really interesting information because i knew now you know that you're talking about it yeah voodoo it's more, it's, yeah, they, com, the wrong things are focused on completely, obviously. Yeah. Uh, when so it's, it's just a, a regular old religion. Yeah. Um, it's not, it sounds more pagan in nature than. Oh, absolutely. Than, it's very much because they're, pra- they're worshiping a lot of these uh, nature deities. But what sucks is because of such the negative connotations that it's been given a lot of practitioners kind of have to keep it a secret, even from their own families. And that's kind of unfortunate because there really isn't anything wrong no. with what they're doing. And again, there's also other um, devil's advocate also kind of shows a very negative connotation. I don't know if they yeah. say food, voodoo or hoodoo or if they kind of put them again. People keep mixing them and it's like, no, they're very – they're very different. It's the kind of the difference between Wiccan and witchcraft. Mm-hmm. So Wicca you have is like very much religious practices. You have the various holidays that you honor where witchcraft could be, you're just focusing on taking various herbs and mixing them together and doing just various small kitchen spells or something. You're not necessarily practicing a religion. So that's kind of my view on it yeah if you want to give it a a western european view yeah yeah so and things like the pentagram is completely western you're not going to see that in any sort of traditional voodoo practice because again it is mostly based off of what you find in west africa uh, mixed in of course with some catholicism and native american as well but it's not it's not what we usually see in in our oh, media. So yeah. Yeah. Oh gosh. Wow. So that is Madame Marie Laveau. And then Very I cool. think uh we'll take a break and then Tia's gonna talk about uh another Smart. gem yeah. of humankind. <laughs> is he human? Evil dead evil. Well, yeah. really? You're the skeptic. Yeah. It's like the After Dark episode. Wow. <laughs> uh, if you want to hear how I showed my one single boob to um, a hobbit, uh, well, I just pulled the story off camera. So. A famous hobbit, okay? Just not any hobbit from the Shire of the City. Just, just a hobbit. hobbit. 
And I am going to tell him that story someday if I ever get to meet him or work with him. I'll tell that story. <laughs> You've already seen my boob. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, but now that Frodo has gained upon thy tit, yeah. you know, that's oh, different. By tit. <laughs> now, you're, now you're talking like your D&D character. <laughs> Yeah, raised upon thy tit. You have raised upon thy tit on this fine morning. Thy tit. (laughs) Oh my god. What did I get us into? I'm sorry. (laughs) Okay, now Tia wants to talk about people that kill people or weird things that kill people with axes. Some something that killed people with axes. All right. People that own axes, they killed the using an axe it wasn't like that would be weird if he just targeted people that owned axes but like you kill them with something like a candle that'd be like that'd be like a battle yeah well it's like you're predicting the whole story already i'm so sorry i only Uh, know what i know from american horror story i wouldn't say he targeted people with axes i would say people owned axes everyone owned an axe in this time so oh uh, okay anyways Let's just get into it's it. It's not as prevalent today. Like, you guys own an, I'm sorry, yeah, axes, we don't we own. We do own an axe that we tried to give you that one time. And then I got what? drunk and forgot you it, which is probably axe. a good thing, because I shouldn't be walking camping? around drunk oh. with an axe. Oh, okay. is not, yeah, I don't, I think that was a good thing I forgot it. Yeah, well, we had an axe for camping, and then I don't know what, like, you had to walk home by yourself or something. I don't remember why. We drunkenly yeah, gave you an know. axe to protect yourself. <laughs> I didn't use the axe because I think that would have just attracted more trouble than yeah. help. You, know, you just, just walk the lift on Oxnard with an axe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All Anyways. Right. So, speaking of, so I am going to talk about the Axemen of New Orleans. All right, here we go. So, on March 13th, 1919, the police or the authorities in New Orleans received a letter that read, Hottest Hell, Esteemed Mortals of New Orleans, the Axeman. They have never caught me, and they never will. They Sorry. They have never seen me, for I am invisible, even as the ether that surrounds your earth. I am not a human being, but a spirit and a demon from the hottest hell. I am what you Orleanians and your foolish police call the Axemen. When I see fit, I shall come and claim other victims. I alone know whom they shall be. I shall leave no clue except my bloody axe. Besmeared Mm. with blood and the brains of he whom whom I sent below to keep me company. If you wish, you may tell the police to be careful not to rile me. Of course, I am a reasonable spirit. I take no offense at the way they have conducted their investigations in the past. In fact, they have been so utterly stupid as to not only amuse me, but his satanic majesty, Francis, Joseph, etc., but tell them to beware. Let them, let them not try to discover what I am, 
for it were better that they were never born than to incur the wrath of the axemen. I don't think there is any need of such warning, for I feel sure the police will always dodge me as they have in the past. They are wise and know how to keep away from all harm. Undoubtedly, you Orleanians think of me as a most horrible murderer, which I am, but I could be much worse if I wanted to. If I wished, I could pay a visit to your city every night. At will, I could slay thousands of your best citizens and the worst, for I am in close relationship with the angel of death. Now, yeah, it goes on. <laughs> now, to be exact, at 12.15 earthly time, on the next Tuesday night, I'm going to pass over New Orleans. In my infinite mercy, I'm going to make a little proposition to you people. Here it is. I am very fond of jazz music, and I swear by all the devils in the nether regions that every person shall be spared in whose home a jazz band is in full swing at the time I have just mentioned. If everyone has a jazz band going well, then so much the better for you people. One thing is certain, and, and that is that some of your people who, who do not jazz it out on that specific, specific Tuesday night, if there be any, will get the axe. Well, as I am cold and crave, and crave the warmth of my native, native Tartarus, and it is about time I leave your earthly home, I will cease my discourse. Hoping that thou wilt publish this, hoping that thou wilt publish this, that it may go well with thee. I have been, am, and will be the worst spirit that ever existed, either in fact or realm of fantasy. Oh, sorry. Uh, let me read that. I have, I have been, and I have been, am, and will be the worst spirit that ever existed, either in fact or realm of fancy. The Axemen. Jesus. So, they received this letter after there had been several murders uh, in New Orleans. So, I'm going to just start with how they believe it started, with the alleged first murder of the Axeman. Um, although there is not, not to be, they're not sure if this was all one person or multiple people or copycats, or if this person even sent this letter who was doing these murders, you know, it's very, very much reminiscent of the Zodiac killer. Yeah, well, I was just going to say, say, I was going to be like, is this the Zodiac Killer's grandfather? Like earlier, yeah. It does right? sound like quite the rant manifesto. Like, yeah. Maybe the Zodiac Killer was inspired by the X. Probably very much so, or at least the person yeah, who sent the letters, you know, yeah. at least the person who sent the letters uh, to the police in, in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So, okay, here we go. So on May 23rd, 1918, 
Joseph Maggio, an Italian grocer, and his wife, Catherine, were attacked while sleeping alongside each other in their home on the corner of Upper Line and Magnolia Streets. So the killer broke into the home and then proceeded to cut the couple's throats with a straight razor. Upon leaving, he bashed their heads in with an axe. Joseph survived the attack, but he died minutes after being discovered by his brother, Jake, or by his two brothers, Jake and Andrew. Uh, so, uh, in the apartment, law enforcement agents found the bloody clothes of the murderer, as he had obviously changed into a new clean set of clothes before, uh, before leaving the scene. A complete search of the premises was not committed, or was not completed by police after the bodies were removed. Yet later, the bloody razor was found on the lawn of a neighboring property. So police ruled out robbery because money and valuables were left in plain sight and were not stolen by the intruder. The razor that was used uh, used was believed to belong to Andrew Maggio, the brother of the deceased, who was a barber uh, on Camp Street. Uh, his employee, Esteban Torres, told the police that Maggio had removed the razor from his shop two days prior to the murder, explaining that he wanted to have a nick uh, on the razor fixed. Maggio, who lived in the adjoining apartment to his brother's resident, discovered his slain brother and sister-in-law roughly two hours after the gruesome attacks had occurred upon hearing strange groaning noises through the wall. Maggio blamed his failure to hear any noise related to the attack that had occurred in the early mornings on his intoxicated state. As he had been celebrating the night prior, uh, his departure to join the Navy, police, however, were nonetheless surprised that he failed to hear the intruder. Um, so Maggio became the police's prime suspect in the crime, yet he was released after investigators were unable to break down his statement as well as his account of the unknown man who was supposedly lurking near the resident prior to the murders. So that's the first one. Pretty gruesome there. But it continues to go on. There are several, several more. So uh, in the early morning of June 27th, Louis Bessemer and his mistress, Harriet Lowe, were attacked in the court in the quarters at the back of his grocery store. Uh, Bessemer uh, was struck with a hatchet above his right temple, which resulted in a possible skull fracture. Lowe was hacked over her left ear and found unconscious when the police arrived at the scene. The couple were discovered shortly after 7 a.m. Uh, by a driver uh, of their bakery wagon who had come to the grocery in order to make a routine delivery. The man's name was John Zanka, and he found both Bessemer and Lowe in a puddle of their own blood bleeding from their heads. Uh, the axe, uh, which had belonged to Bessemer himself, was found in the bathroom of the apartment. Bessemer uh, later stated to police uh, that he had been sleeping when he, when he was bashed with the hatchet. Um, almost immediately police arrested potential suspect 
Louis Obacon, a then 41-year-old African-American man who had been employed in Bessemer's store just a, a week before the attacks. No evidence existed which could have proved that the man was guilty, yet police arrested him nonetheless, stating that Obacon had offered conflicting of accounts of his whereabouts on the morning of the attack. So that sounds racially driven to me. Yeah. Um, but so shortly after the attempted murder, uh, Lowe stated that she remembered having been attacked by a mulatto man, yet her statement was discounted by the police due to her disillusioned state. Uh, robbery was also a possible explanation, yet no money or valuables had been taken from the home. So, very similar to what had happened. Uh, Obacon was later released from the police as they were unable to gather sufficient evidence to hold him accountable. Uh, media attention soon turned to uh, Bessemer himself as a series of letters written in German, Russian, and Yiddish, were discovered in his trunk at the man's home. Uh, police suspected that Bessemer was a German spy, and government officials began a full investigation of his potential espionage. Weeks later, after going uh, in and out of consciousness, Harriet Lowe told the police that she thought Bessemer was in fact a German spy, which led to his immediate arrest. Uh, two days later, Bessemer was released, and the two lead investigators of the case were demoted due to unacceptable police work. So, um, uh, Bessemer was once again arrested on August uh, 1918 after Harriet Lowe, who lay dying in Charity Hospital, uh, stated that he was the one who attacked her uh, more than a month previously with the hatchet. He was charged, served nine months in prison, prison but was acquitted uh, on May 1st, 1990, after a 10-minute jury deliberation. So Harriet Lowe became the center of a media circus as she continually made scandalous and often false statements relating to both the attacks and the character of Louis Bessemer, uh, which uh, some of which are described to be preceding, uh, sorry, Louis Bessemer. Sorry, I can't even read what I wrote. Um, well, or and or copied from Wikipedia. <laughs> um, so, since um. So when it was discovered that she was not the wife of Bessemer, but his mistress, um, basically she was kind of dragged through, uh, through the mud and a source, a charity hospital source discovered the scandal when Bessemer asked to be directed to the room of Miss Harriet Lowe and was inevitably denied access as no woman by that name was a patient. So, uh, Bessemer's legal wife arrived from Cincinnati in the days, uh, immediately following the discovery, which further inflamed the ongoing drama. So basically, yeah, 
Um, so Lowe died August 5th, 1918, and uh, just two days after the doctors performed sur- surgery in an effort to repair her partially paralyzed face. Uh, just prior to her death, Lowe told authorities that she suspected it was Louis Bessemer who had attacked her. So, anyways. Um, then it goes on. This this one was pretty, pretty badass, actually. So, uh, in the early evening hours of August 5th, 1918, the 8th, eight months pregnant, 28-year-old Anna Scheidt, Sh- oh, God, Schneider, <laughs> why can't I say that? It's just Schneider. Schneider. There we go. Yeah. Schneider. Attacked, uh, she awoke to find a dark figure standing over her and was bashed in the face repeatedly. Her scalp had been cut open and her face was completely covered in blood. Mrs. Schneider was discovered after midnight by her husband, Ed Schneider, who was returning late uh, from work. Schneider claimed that she had she remembered nothing of the attack and gave birth to a healthy baby girl two days after the incident. Her husband oh told God. police that nothing was... Yeah. Her really? Husband, <laughs> yeah. Her husband told police that nothing was stolen from the home besides six or seven dollars that had been in his wallet. The window and doors of the apartment appear to have not been forced open and authorities came to the conclusion that the woman was most likely attacked with a lamp that had been on a nearby table. Uh, James Gleason, who police said was an ex-convict, was arrested shortly after Schneider was found. Gleason was later released due to complete lack of evidence and stated that he originally ran from the authorities because he had so often been arrested. Uh, That makes sense. That tracks. So lead investigators began to publicly speculate that the attack was related to the previous uh, incidents involving Bessemer and Maggio. So then it basically continues. There are a few more. I mean, this is like terrifying if I was living in New Orleans at this time. Like, oh, yeah. This is right. This, yeah. So on August 10th, 1918, Joseph Romano, an elderly man living with his two nieces, Pauline and Mary Bruno, uh, his nieces uh, awoke to the sound of a commotion in the adjoining room where their uncle resided. Upon entering the room, the sisters discovered that their uncle had taken a serious blow to his head, which resulted in two open cuts. Uh, The assailant was fleeing the scene as they arrived, yet the girls were... Uh, the girls were able to distinguish that he was a dark-skinned, heavy-set man who wore a dark suit and slouched hat. Romano, although seriously injured, was able to walk to the ambulance once it arrived, yet died two days later due to severe head trauma. The, the home had been ransacked, yet no items were stolen. Uh, authorities found a bloody axe in the back of the yard and discovered that a panel on the back door had been chiseled away. The Romano murder created a state of extreme chaos in the city with residents living in constant fear of the axemen. Police received a slew of reports 
in which citizens claim to have seen an axe man lurking in New Orleans neighborhoods. A few uh, even called to report that they had found axes in their backyards. John D'Antonio, a then-retired Italian detective, made public statements in which he hypothesized that the man who had committed the Axeman murders was the same one who killed several individuals in 1911. The retired detective cited uh, similarities in the manner by which the two sets of homicides had been committed as the reason to assume that they had been conducted by the same individual. Um, so, uh, so he basically claims that this person most likely had two personalities and that was his motivation and that he was probably a regular law abiding citizen by day, but, uh, he later went on to describe the killer as a real life Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, which is pretty Ooh. terrifying. I mean, that yeah. letter, oh my I God, mean, that letter alone. So this is all happening. That was not written by someone that's, you know, stable. Yeah. So, <laughs> but these all happened prior to that letter. So when that letter was finally published, like it put New Orleans into an extreme amount of fear. I, I couldn't even imagine, you know, because this isn't just one or two. This is a lot, you know, and they're so similar with the fact that they're using pieces from the person's own house and that like no money is taken. Uh, a lot of the time too, there, there's a female living in the house, which I'll get into a little bit later that they thought that that might be part of the motivation of why this person was targeting these individuals, like that the women were the actual target. So very weird. Um, so on the night of March 10th, 1919, screams were heard coming from uh, the co- court. Mil- mil- oh, God, I'm sorry to every Italian out there that I'm doing this, but Court Magilia, Court Magilia, Court Magilia residence. Charles Court Magilia uh, was an Italian immigrant who lived with his wife, Rosie, and infant daughter. Mary, uh, grocer Orlando Giordano rushed across the street to investigate. Upon his arrival, Giordano noticed that Charles, Como, Charles, uh, his wife and their daughter had all been attacked by an unknown intruder. Rosie stood in the doorway with a serious head wound clutching her deceased daughter. Charles lay on the floor, bleeding profusely. The couple was rushed to Charity Hospital, where it was discovered that both had suffered skull fractures. Nothing was stolen from the house. A panel in the back of the door had been chiseled away, and a bloody axe was found on the porch of the home. So, uh, Charles was released two days later, while his wife remained in the care of the doctors. Upon gaining full consciousness, Rosie made claims that uh, Orlando... Giordano and his 18-year-old son Frank were responsible for the attacks. But uh, Orlando was 69 years old and in poor health and Frank Giordano was a very big person, six feet tall, 
weighing over 200 pounds and would have not been able to fit inside the area of the door that was chiseled away. Charles vehemently denied his wife's claim, yet police nonetheless arrested the two. Uh, the man would be later found guilty. Uh, Frank was sentenced to hang and his father was spent his life in prison or was uh, his father was sentenced to life in prison. Charles divorced his wife after the trial. Almost a year later, though, Rosie announced that she had falsely accused the two out of jealousy and spite. And uh, her statement was the only evidence against the Giordano's, and they were released shortly after. uh, They were released from jail shortly after. So they did spend, both of them spent a year in jail um, because she just made that announcement. And so, like, with all of this, like, of course they're not catching this guy because people are like scandalizing this guy for having an affair. And then this woman is blaming the wrong people, you know, and it's just so sensationalized. And the letter could very possibly not even be from this person. So anyways, around this time between this murder and the next one is when the letter was sent to authorities and it was published. Uh, so uh, on August 10th, 1919, Steve Bo- Boca, a grocer, also was attacked in his bedroom as he slept by an axe-wielding intruder. Boca woke during the night to find a dark figure looming over his bed. Upon regaining consciousness, Boca ran to the street to investigate the intrusion and found that his head had been cracked open. Uh, the grocer ran to the home of his neighbor, Frank uh I'm not his neighbor, Frank, uh, where he lost consciousness and collapsed. Nothing had been taken from his home. A panel in the door of the back of the door had been chiseled away. Uh, He did recover from his injuries, but could not remember any details due to his trauma. Um, And then, oh, okay. So then after this is where the letter ends up being published after this murder. So then on the night of September 3rd, 1919, uh, neighbors of Sarah, a woman, Sarah Lawman, came to check on her because she lived alone. uh, And uh, they had to break into her home when she did not answer. They discovered that the 19 year old girl, uh, that she was unconscious on her bed, suffering from a severe head injury a severe head injury and she was missing several teeth. The intruder had entered the apartment through an open window and attacked the woman with a blunt object. A bloody axe was discovered on the front lawn of the building. She did recover from her injuries, but did not recall any uh, details of the attack. The last one, Mike Pepiton was attacked on the night of October 27, 1919. His wife was awakened by a noise and arrived at the door of his bedroom just as a large axe-wielding man was fleeing the scene. Mike Pepiton had been struck in the head and was covered in his own blood. Blood splatter covered the majority of the room, mm. including a painting of the Virgin Mary. Mrs. Pepitone and the mother of the mother of six children was unable to describe the characteristics of the killer. And uh, the Pepitone murder was allegedly the last of the axemen attacks. So, who this person was, was never 
really fully decided on who it could possibly be. Uh, as you can tell, a lot of people thought it was a darker skinned person. This might have been racially motivated. Who knows? Or yeah. it's very possible that this person was trying to disguise themselves. But anyway, so crime writer Colin Wilson speculates the Axeman could have been Joseph Momfrey, um, a man who would be later shot to death in Los Angeles um, by the window of Mike Pepitone. Uh Yeah, so I'm not sure. This is where I got kind of confused because I'm not sure if Mike Pepitone was living in Los Angeles during this time or if there were Axeman murders also in Los Angeles. But that's where I'm getting confused a little bit on this information. And I apologize to everyone on this. How dare you? <laughs> How dare I get conflicting information or not enough? Oh, you know, are you not there's using never a been... time machine to get back in time to <laughs> view these events yeah. as they happen? How, yeah. Do you not have access to that? And exact sufficient details? That's not a thing either. So. Right. <laughs> so Wilson's theater or theater Wilson's theory had been widely repeated in true crime books. Uh, however, true crime writer Michael Newton searched New Orleans and Los Angeles public police and court records, as well as the new newspaper archives and failed to find any evidence that, uh, with the name jo Joseph Mumphrey or a similar name having been assaulted or killed in Los Angeles. Uh, Newton was not able to find any information that Mrs. Pepitone, uh, identify, uh, Mrs. Pepperdon, uh, sorry. Okay. Newton was not able to find any information that Mrs. Pepitone identified in some sources as da -da 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 -da. Oh, okay. Um, so Newton notes that Momfrey was not an unusual surname in New Orleans at the time of the crimes. It appears that there were actually may have been an individual named Joseph Momfrey or Mumphrey in New Orleans who had a criminal history and who may have been connected with the organized crime. However, uh, local history, uh, and uh, however, local history records for the period are not extensive enough to allow confirmation of this. So, anyways, two of the alleged early crimes of the victims of the Axeman is an Italian couple, and there's no way I'm going to be able to pronounce this name, but I'll just spell it out. S-C-H-I-A-M-B-R. Shimbra? Shimbra. I am so sorry. I am so sorry to everyone in the Italian community right now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> two of the alleged early victims of the Axeman, an Italian couple, were shot by an intruder in their lower Ninth Ward home in the early mornings of May 16th, 1912. Uh, the husband survived while his wife died. Newspaper accounts, uh, the prime suspect is referred to by the name of Momfrey in this incident. While radically different than the Axeman's usual 
modus operandi. Uh, If Joseph Mumphrey was indeed the Axeman, the Chambres may have well been some of his early victims. So they think it could be this guy. Now, okay, so like I was saying earlier, these murders were all so, so, so similar that it's just like, must have been so terrifying at this time. So the victims were usually attacked with an ax, which often belonged to the victim. Um, which was weird that, what did Roxana say earlier? Super that, weird. About what? I don't know. Like, what? We're, yeah. About what? <laughs> about, uh, you said something <laughs> earlier about like- I say a lot of things. <laughs> but I have to remind me. <laughs> that you were like, we're, I talked for like, 40 minutes about Madame Marie Laveau. <laughs> oh, yeah. I know. But, like, you said something like, uh, was, was he killing them with their own axes or something? Which is right on the nose with that. He no, I mean, no. I'm saying it'd be funny if he was, like, an axe murderer, but he was killing people who... He was only killing people who owned axes, but not with the axe. Like, oh, he would be killing yeah. them with, you know, a candlestick or he'd well, strangle them with rope. But the only reason why he's targeting them is because they have an axe. So therefore, oh, he's yeah. called the axe killer. It's a terrible idea from marijuana. <laughs> well, I mean, but... technically, he was targeting people with axes, but killing them with the axe. But I just think everybody yes. owned axes in 1919. So, yeah. Uh, okay, so. Probably, Yeah. Um, the back door was often uh, removed by a chisel along with a panel on the left of the floor near the door. The intruder attacked one or more of the residents with either an axe or a straight razor. Crimes were not motivated by robbery. The perpetrator never removed items from the victim's home except for that one saying $6 was missing. But that that was just allegedly allegedly so the allegedly. majority the majority of the axman's victims were italian immigrants or italian americans leading many to believe that it was ethnically motivated sounds uh, like it yeah many media outlets sensationalized the aspect of the crimes even suggesting mafia involvement some crime analysis have suggested that the killings were related to sex and that the murderer was perhaps a sadist specifically seeking female victims. Although there wasn't a female victim in every case, every case at least had a female in the home. And many of the cases where the female was not attacked was because the guy, the axeman got caught in the act of killing probably the first person they saw in the house. And then he ran off, okay. Like the two nieces caught him. Yeah. um, And he ran off. Criminologists Colin and Damon Wilson hypothesized that the Axemen Axemen killed male victims only when they were obstructed, uh, only when they were obstructed his attempts to murder women, which, yeah, is what I just said. Um, A less plausible theory is that the killer committed the murders in an attempt to promote jazz music. Uh, suggested by the letter uh, attributed to the killer, which he stated he would spare the lives of those who played jazz music. Such a strange, like, angel of death motif 
there. Right. You know, like, Instead of, you know, the blood of a lamb, it's Yeah, jazz. the blood of the lamb, but jazz. <laughs> that sounds jazz. better, definitely. But, you know, still, what? <laughs> Question so, mark. So the axe man was never caught or identified. His crime spe- spree stopped as mysteriously as it started. The murderer identified remain remain the murderer's identity remains unknown to this very day. Uh, on March 13, nineteen nineteen, the letter that did come out was published in the newspaper, saying that he would kill again at fifteen minutes past midnight on the March of nineteenth, and would spare all only occupants that had had a jazz band playing that night. All of New Orleans dance halls were filled to capacity and professional and amateur bands played jazz at parties at hundreds of houses around the town. There were no murders committed that night. Yeah. Maybe he was just a promoter. Maybe like the the guy that wrote the letter was a promoter and it's completely nothing to do with the actual murderer. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Like, and this was just a big old PR thing, (laughs) and like that the actual axe murder had already left town by then. Uh. (laughs) I mean, who knows? Who knows? But just absolutely terrifying. Totally. I've been wanting to talk about this story for a while because I find the fact that, I mean, there's the kind of portrayed it really well in American Horror Story. There's a scene where the man... I was going to ask you what you thought about that. Yeah. Yeah, I think they should have left him to be a little bit more mysterious, but the the image that they have, or the scene that they have of him walking down the streets of New Orleans and all of these houses have jazz music playing, and he's just pleased with himself. Right. Very well could have happened. Very, very possible that that I don't know. Yeah. I'm gonna go with that. I'm telling you, it was a promoter that took advantage of this. He couldn't get his jazz band <laughs> to get booked anywhere. And so he's mm. like, you know what? I'm here's a surefire way. People mm. think they're gonna die. Sure. It, and that's it. And his jazz band. Yeah, you know? well he could have been that could have that's a plausible theory on someone Very who possible. just wrote a letter. Like didn't he was just taking advantage of the fact that exactly that it was not him at all uh-huh yeah but didn't commit the murders very right. very possible that the person who wrote the letters is not that's how i felt about with the black dahlia murders is that yeah, it was very the- possible that whoever wrote the letters to police was not the black dahlia killer same with the Zodiac, very possibly not been him. I believe that the Zodiac was, was more two than different one people. killer, isn't there? You yes. think Zodiac was yeah. different people? Oftentimes. Very Wait, possible you... that the Zodiac was two different killers. Yeah. yeah. Oh, so okay. this very possibly also could have been multiple people, especially because allegedly there's some murders, I guess, happening in Los Angeles too, or, you know... A lot of people getting killed with axes at the time. There's also the um, the the man from the train. I think that's what the oh, book is yeah. called. Oh yeah, yeah. Where again, very he, possibly to be like connecting this murder of um, of axe murders basically with the train, and he kind he would go into people's houses, and he had a very specific mo. Uh, mm-hmm. So he would 
kill the family, but he would also do like this weird thing with the the girls where he would take off their panties and didn't look, I mean, they didn't think he did anything except for that. Or sometimes he would pile the bodies on top of each other and like set it on fire. Or he would always have like a lantern that was like uncovered or a lamp that was uncovered either to start a fire or if that was a ritual. Mm. Uh, But it was all throughout the United States and it all seemed to coincide with the fucking train. Yeah. So, oh and, and he always, mostly he would use an ax and usually an ax that belonged to the people whose house it was. But then I guess that'd be like nowadays the killer, you know, stabbing them with a kitchen knife. We all have kitchen knives. I guess, you know, if we all had axes, yeah, a lot more of us would be getting killed. That's with true. Axes. It's so, whatever the uh, sharp implement of the day is. <laughs> right. And now it's uh, kitchen knives, you know, yeah. that kind of thing. Rusty agrees. <laughs> he actually just wants food, but you know, yeah, I get it. Saying he agrees is cuter. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. So there's that. Yeah, from the hottest hell. The from accident. the hottest. I don't know. That oh, sounds like a, a hype man. Now go back and read the letter as if it's a fucking hype man. Yeah, and I don't know. I'm just telling you, like some I guy. I don't want to change really- my like. Instagram name to his satanic majesty, but I'm not really right. Come on, that's I'm a total mad. hype man thing. Yeah, what it's a, that's think? a total like hype man thing. His satanic majesty, just the the grandeur and the 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 language and the over exaggeration kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, it does seem like the introduction of like a religious battle that's about to happen or something, right? Yeah. In his satanic And in this majesty, corner, weighing at 500 pounds. Like, oh, like Lil Nas X video, I think. Um, yeah. <laughs> maybe. Seems like that to me. Lil Nas X next video, this topic. Whatever. Yeah, and he's like, his <laughs> majesty. <laughs> also gives me, like, very much incel vibes of, like, have you ever, like, talked to someone who thinks they're so badass? Like... <laughs> Or yes, exactly. Yeah. Like six-year-old kid, or you know, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I was friends with a lot of goth kids growing up, and they, they some of them so thought like, "I am the demon from another world." Right, I am and you're demon. like, like you're uh, Jeff. <laughs> you're you are Jeff. That you peed your Instagram pants in second filter. grade, Jeff. We'll never forget that. <laughs> yeah. For I am in close relationship with the angel of death. Yeah. <laughs> I am the Antichrist. Um, no, I was, well, I don't know. I was heavily censored, so I was, uh, you know, banned from hanging out with uh, too many people. Couldn't do anything. <laughs> you didn't miss out on hanging out with goth incels so I'll say we, we, we have to deal with that on so, a daily basis yeah oh at, at our cut that don't put that in there <laughs> <laughs> don't put that in there we can't comment on that yeah, they're gonna yeah, figure out so, where we work so yeah, well, yeah okay. oh, oh yeah, well, we did is. have this guest we did have this guest come through who first thing he tells me is i'm a medium which 
I hate when people uh, tell me that. I hate when they tell me that because I'm yeah. like, okay, now I have to keep an eye on you because what are you going to do? What are you right? going to do? 50% of the time they're okay and they just wave their hands over things. The <laughs> other 50% of the time they are completely off their rocker. Oh my God. Like very uncomfortable. This guy was that. This guy was the most extreme case of this I've ever seen. So I'm with the guest for like 10 minutes in the front lobby. And while I was there, he told me he was a medium. He had disassociative identity disorder. He had okay. seven demons and like eight angels living with him or living inside of him or that were his, his altars. You know, he knew the terminology but he didn't also obviously didn't understand what how disassociative identity disorder works because that's not how it works at all. Yeah. Uh, and no. that yeah. he had Cthulhu living within him. Oh wow. That's like that's a lot. lot. So it, I don't think there's enough room in him for Cthulhu. Yeah. You know and that's I mean? that's not how disassociative identity disorder works at all. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm sure he's not stable you know yeah no no he's not any of those things he's a pathological liar that's what he is you know okay. that is the thing that he is uh so i find out from the various other tour guides who had him throughout the house that he told this to every single one of them oh you're a medium you're a medium no that he well that he's a medium that he has these demons like they all came up and was like oh my god i had cthulhu on my tour i'm like you had him too he told you that? Like, how did he even have time to tell you that on the tour? Oh, and then he oh kept saying, God, what did he say to Chelsea? The creep, the creepy thing he said to Chelsea. Oh, uh, something like daddy's hungry or something or some shit yeah. like that, right? Like his demon was speaking and yeah, he kept saying that daddy was hungry. Ew. Soul yeah. needs to eat that souls or some shit. I can't remember. Yeah, what the fuck Dead. And that whole that whole group was a mess because like half of them like believed him, you know, and they were like on board with this and like totally were eating up all of that, which is frustrating too because it's like, oh god, now I have to babysit all of you, <laughs> you know. Like, I've had, and like, don't get me wrong, like I am a skeptic, but I've had I had one guest on my in my group who said he was, uh sensitive to spirits and I fully believed him with the way that he was reacting and the way that he talked about the things in the house. He was on the nose about things that he wouldn't know about at all uh, that I know about in the house. And he he didn't tell me it as a way of bragging. He told me like, huh, like he would go up to things and be like, huh, that does have weird energy, doesn't it? And like kind of wave his hands over things and goes, hmm, this piece is interesting, you know, and I feel like someone who really is like sensitive to that stuff kind of is, isn't going to play it up. They're going to downplay no. it. Right. You know? Right. Yeah. And right. he, he knew where the portal was in the basement without us telling him where, oh, God. where it was. Portal in the or, basement? Fuck no. Oh God. Yeah. Well, so uh, voodoo, voodoo priestess Bloody Mary and Zach did a ritual in the basement, uh, in an area that is no longer there. So technically, it's like 
behind a wall because Zach built like kind of a maze downstairs. So the air, it used to be an open basement and now it's kind of a lot smaller of a room. So my guest was like, oh yeah, then this area, I felt like there was a portal in the wall. I don't know how to explain it. It was like just to the left of like the spirit box or he like kind of described where it was. And when I went and asked the manager about it later, he was like, that's the area that voodoo priestess that they did the, that bloody Mary and Zach did the ritual to, to open up a portal down there. Oh, he's like, that's weird because that wall wouldn't have been there at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, so he was pointing to the area where the ritual actually was. So that's why I would believe him, you know, in that, because it's like, there's some credibility to that. He also like, he was in a group with, with what we call a hand waver, which is a girl that is being affected by everything and is going to like wave her hands. And she was making a spectacle of herself. And this guy was not. And it was so interesting because there was like two ends of the spectrum, like the girl who wanted attention for her mediumship and the guy who was probably a legit medium who just wanted to experience the museum, you know? So anyway, Siri, Pat, you're going to have to cut all that out. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah. As much as I'd love to talk about Cthulhu on the podcast. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'll cut it out. But yeah. Anyway, wrap it up. So we can... yeah. 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 Very good. That was a good episode. It's interesting. Yeah. We got all Halloween. And now we have to plan our trip to New Orleans. Yes. I do want to do that. I do want to well, I'm gonna. I'm hungry. I need to go eat. Oh, okay. Wait, what? I don't. Sorry, you guys. The French Quarter when we go. And oh, fuck yeah! We'll have, naturally, we'll have beignets and we'll have lobster or whatever they have. Crawfish. Crawfish. Yeah. yeah. Crawfish. Yeah. Just a just yeah. a quick little production note. I don't think you guys recorded an outro. Like, oh, oh yeah, no, yeah, we did, but that. we're still recording. So yeah, that's that's what yeah, I'm saying. Yeah, we can do that right now. Before you lose anybody. Pat, oh yeah, yeah, Pat yeah. Not, yeah, stop recording. Okay. All right, woo, good episode. That was awesome. Oh, yeah. thank you all for listening and joining us on my weird little podcast. Please follow us on uh, Instagram when I get one, and email us. Get an email. Yay. Yay. All right. Stay spooky, everyone. Woo. <laughs>